0: How much more would you actually pay attention to the exact words that were coming out of your patient's mouth if you knew that it would make a huge impact on the way that you delivered care and that could completely change their entire medical outcome? How valuable would that be to you? I'm Dr. Khan. And I am a double board certified critical care specialist and I practice in the United States. I've been in practice for a little over seven years now uh, and before that it took me 13 years to get here. So It's been a long road and I've learned a lot of lessons, but this story in particular taught me so much about the power of listening and I can't wait to share it with you. So, of course, the story starts out at, you know, nearly the end of my shift, nearly at the end of an entire week stretch of working 12-hour days, um, just completely exhausted in the middle of COVID, right? So (laughs) that's how these stories always start. And I had a few rough days prior to this particular midweek hustle and everything was going great on my shift except for at around 6:30 p.m. when i'm getting ready to leave in an hour i got three new admissions right um but as an attending it's kind of nice because you actually get to punt off some of the admissions um, so I decided that the GI bleed was going to go to the night shift doctor. Uh, as a trainee, you don't have that luxury <laughs> because you're constantly working. But trust me, it gets better at the end of all of this. But so what I decided to do was tackle the two STEMIs that just came to the ICU who are actually already physically present and uh, just finished their cardiac casts. So the, f- the first patient... Wonderful gentleman, awake, amazing, happy as a clam, excited he gets to live another day, um, got a stent in his LAD, classic, right? So he was mostly there just for observation. I did a really quick history and physical, and I moved on. The next patient the cardiologist called me about him and Said that, you know, he came in for as a code STEMI, but his cardiac cath was clean, completely clean, didn't put in a stent. And so this kind of piqued my interest. Like, what caused the other hospital to make him a code STEMI, transfer him to our hospital? and for our cardiologist to also evaluate him and decided he needed a cardiac cath right away. And then he ended up with clean coronaries. So already I'm kind of really interested in this. And uh, at our hospital, it was standard protocol to screen everyone for COVID and he was already negative. So it wasn't even one of those weird zebra things. Where you know he had massive vasospasm from COVID or something weird like that, and after talking to the really pleasant gentleman, I was I was also in a good mood and I was also just excited that some of my patients weren't uh, intubated and I could actually talk to them because during COVID no family members were allowed, so. Pretty much if my patient was intubated, uh, I wasn't having conversations with, uh, anyone outside of my, uh, healthcare partners, like the nurses and respiratory therapists. So I go in to talk to this guy and I wanted to know what happened. Why did he go through this whole process, get worked up for acute coronary syndrome? And it turns out that's not the answer. So I just asked him, "You know, tell me what happened today." And he's a 69-year-old male, uh, and then he told me that, uh, you know, I started having this chest pain in but it, what it started with both of my arms going completely numb. And then I had this massive chest pain in the center of my chest and I couldn't breathe and I was completely drenched in sweat to the point where, you know, all my clothes got soaked. Um, kind of classic, except for now I'm even more interested because his arm pain or this numbness that he experienced was symmetric. So that's a little weird, right? It's a little weird. So now I want to know, what was he doing before this? What was he doing during it? How was he able to call the phone? Who did he talk to? What's going on? I want to know the whole scene. So I asked him, well, what were you doing before? And he said that he was going on his usual five-mile walk in his neighborhood, to stay active during COVID, he came home, he sat down, and then after about five minutes got up, and that's when he started experiencing all his symptoms. And now my my brain is kind of churning, right? So this is when you kind of start to think about different things, like vasovagal, he went from seated to standing, and something something odd was going on. Then, of course, I ask him, I just go through the whole thing now, so, do you have any medical problems? He naturally says no, and then I ask him, do you take any medications? And then he's like, yeah, I'm on aspirin, I'm on allopurinol, and I take this medicine for my cholesterol. <laughs> of course now okay just note to self note to everyone don't ever ask the question do you have any medical problems just ask them have you been diagnosed with any chronic diseases that you take medications for because I'm starting to realize, and this is even me as an attending, I'm learning from my patients. I'm starting to realize that no one wants to be labeled as having problems. So when you ask him, do you have any medical problems? They're going to say no. <laughs> so he tells me the, about the aspirin and I say, well, what do you take the aspirin for? Oh, well, two years ago, I had a stroke. Oh, As I'm talking to him, he's completely fine, mobile, no neurological deficits. Tell me how that stroke happened. Oh, well, uh, my tongue started rolling. And my son was on the phone. And we called the ambulance. They came, got me, took me to the hospital. By the time I got to the hospital, my tongue stop rolling but they told me to just take an aspirin because maybe it was like a mini stroke or a pre-stroke I was like okay that makes sense well what else what else has happened in your life what's the allopurinol for and then he tells me oh I had these particular type of kidney stones and so to prevent it I take that okay whatever I, I like okay um, anything else happened in your life? Like what, what, what are some weird times when you have needed to go to the hospital or have had a, to, um, have any special care, right? So notice I'm just continuing to dig deeper and deeper based on the responses that he's giving me, because I want to know actually what's going on. So then he tells me that, well, he had some, like, lung thing. He kind of described it like a lung biopsy because he used to work in a factory. um, And uh, he had some exposure and some scar tissue. Uh, He also said, you know, 20 years ago when he was working at this factory, his left leg blew up like a balloon and they found clots in it and then he had to take some medicine for a period of time for the clots but he said that six months ago he went to his doctor he went to his regular hospital And they checked him for clots, and he didn't have any clots. Like, those clots went away, he told me. And so normally someone might just say, okay, he has a history of a DVT. But what I wanted to know was, was this a provoked DVT or an unprovoked DVT? And why is this important? You're going to start to see how this story unfolds. So I asked him about what what was he doing when his legs got swollen. Did he go on any long flights, any long travel? Was he smoking? You know, all the inciting factors of a hypercoagulable state. And he said that he wasn't doing anything. It was just like a regular old day. Um, with his regular old activities. And he sounds like a really active guy. He takes his health pretty seriously. So I thought, you know, that's interesting. That's weird. He's had a stroke. He's had a DBT 20 years ago, unprovoked. And this TIA or whatever it was with a rolling tongue went away To the point where he didn't need a, he didn't need TPA or anything like that, any major intervention. So I examine him, everything's fine, totally normal. Specifically, his legs aren't swollen, they're symmetric. Uh, He's on room air, his blood pressure is fine. His pulse ox is showing 95%. Now, if it was a big enough DVT to be a big enough pulmonary embolism that would have explained his STEMI, wouldn't he be hypotensive? Wouldn't he be severely hypoxic? Wouldn't these symptoms have not resolved And if you have a PE large enough to cause EKG changes where you come in as a code STEMI, isn't that going to make or break you? Like, shouldn't you be really sick? So I'm kind of thinking, like, I don't know. Am I losing my mind thinking working up a DVT and a PE? I go to the chart, and I look at the EKG, definitely... STEMI, right? ST elevations. So when I'm reviewing this EKG, right, I'm looking for S1, Q3, T3. But again, every patient I've seen with an S1, Q3, T3 is dying. (laughs) They're in the process of dying. They're hemodynamically unstable and just a mess. So he didn't have an S1. He did have a Q3 with ST changes, right? Code STEMI, Uh, and he didn't have a T3. So luckily, I have a bag of tricks under my sleeve as a critical care physician. And this is point of care ultrasound. I am actually faculty for one of the national courses in the United States with the American College of Chest Physicians. And through my teaching, and of course my clinical practice, I know how valuable it is to be able to complete your own DVT studies, Complete your own echocardiograms. Look at all of the abdominal organs to get all this quick information so you can make changes to your patients quickly, right? This is an invaluable skill. And if you haven't learned it yet, I highly recommend you do this. You can find me on social media for any questions if you want to know more about this. So I asked the nurse to grab me the ultrasound, get the ultrasound, I scan his leg, and lo and behold, I see a DVT. And when I say see, I don't mean like I actually see the thrombus like you classically see in ultrasound pictures. His right superficial femoral vein is just not compressible. And of course, like when you get down to the superficial femoral vein and the deep femoral vein, after it splits, the ultrasound images get really difficult to interpret depending on the thickness of the leg and the ultrasound machine that you're using. Uh, And then it's, it's also a little bit more challenging to compress in this particular area. So, It's not compressible. I'm not 100% sure what's actually going on because the picture's grainy. Uh, But his left leg is fine. But it's enough for me to want to order a formal ultrasound. And I didn't want to freak him out, you know, while I'm doing this. I told him, I think I see something here. I don't know. We're going to get some more studies. I'm going to have the ultrasound guys come up and, and take a look. So I leave the room. I call up my, my cardiology friend. I tell him what I saw. And he was like, oh, no, it's probably just vasospasm. Let's just continue to treat him as ACS. Like, let's keep the Plavix on and everything. I was like, OK, sure, buddy, whatever. Uh, and <laughs> for the trainees, it's no longer like a battlefield of who's right. Once you're in, in practice, it's just kind of an exchange of opinions in a really respectful way and so um, it's now at the end of my shift the night shift guy is there waiting for my sign out and I just tell the nurse manager hey I want this done stat and I want the ultrasound tech to drive into the hospital because now it's like seven thirty p.m. everyone's gone home right so I sign it out to the to the night guy My cardiology friend blew me off, (laughs) which is cool. I don't care, right? There's no room for pride in this profession. And he was hemodynamically stable on room air. And I thought, you know what? I will trust my nighttime colleague to follow up on this study and start anticoagulation if it's warranted, right? We'll find out the answer in an hour. I went home. And I actually detached. So this is something that's really important to this story. And it's just like a total side lesson. You are going to drive yourself absolutely completely insane if you do not have a wellness plan to detach yourself from the hospital when you leave the hospital. So what I do is instead of thinking about my patient and what happened with his DVT PE and maybe that was it, uh, instead of just thinking about him all night, I focus on my health and well being. So I come home, I completely strip down because it's COVID. So I'm in in, in this hotel room because I'm flying around a COVID unit. So I come home, I strip down, I jump into the shower. And when I jump into the shower, I visualize the energy of the hospital just washing completely off of me and going down into the drain. And it's something so simple. And maybe some of you guys are thinking, oh, that's really silly and woo-woo and the energy and, oh, the water is going to cleanse me. But it 100% works. And most scientists are visual learners, and it's really powerful in completely unwinding. So anyway, so I have a restful night's sleep. I'm hanging out, watching whatever I want on Netflix. I go in the next morning, and I get sign-out from my nighttime colleague And he tells me, yeah, I put him on a heparin drip because he did have a DVT. So I sent him for a CAT scan, got a CTA, and he does have a PE. And so we started him on a heparin drip. And I was just, I was blown away. I was sad for him because as a physician, you just don't want to be right sometimes. But at the same time, I knew that I would have never, ever, ever done that workup if I didn't listen to his story and what he had to say about what happened to him that day, how he came back from his five-mile walk, sat down, five minutes later got up and that's when he had his symptoms and I had to dig to get that DVT history so after sign out I walked into the room and I talked to him and he was like oh my god thank you so much you are the only doctor that has ever listened to me the way that you did and you figured out what was wrong and I'm so grateful. And I, I, I was, I was blown away because uh, normally patients don't thank you like that anymore. You know, there's just there's such a mistrust between patients and physicians, especially in the United States. Uh, and so for him to have that level of gratitude for me was just so deeply impactful and I just knew that I was in the right place at the right time in the right mood to want to talk to him and to want to know what happened like I learned all about his family in fact you know I learned that he immigrated here to the United States when he was 16 um, and he had to take care of his younger siblings for uh, six months before his parents were able to come. Like, I just knew everything about this guy's life. <laughs> we, we talked for a long time. I didn't go through all those details because I wanted to just get to the point of the, the PEDVT surprise and a code STEMI. But the other thing was that his workup wasn't done. So I started telling him, I'm like, you know, it's unusual that you would continue to have all these clots, like a stroke is a form of a clot. And I'm worried that there might be something genetic around this. And as soon as I said that, he says, oh, you know what? Now that you mention it, when my daughter was born... She had a bunch of clots in her legs. And that, you know, they had to do all this special stuff for her at the hospital. And now I'm like, oh my God. Not only have I maybe affected his life and his well being in the way that he moves forward, but I've also created a ripple effect in maybe changing the outcomes of his entire family, his children. And this is why it is so important to show up with integrity and ears wide open, just ready to soak in what your patients are going to teach you that day. Unfortunately, I don't actually know the end of his hypercoagulable workup, but I, because he had to get transferred back to the hospital that he came from. He only came there for the STEMI and... If you guys don't know, in the United States, healthcare is a business, and it's all about money and insurance and who's paying what bill and blah, blah, blah. So he went back to his regular hospital, but I told him, I said, please get tested for factor five Leiden. And I wrote that down very specifically on a piece of paper. I said, I wish we had the time to continue to dive into this, but I need to make sure that you get this worked up and here's my email address let me know how you do oh one other super important part of all of this is (laughs) later that morning when my cardiology friend found out he he was like man I really blew you off yesterday and he apologized uh, which was awesome but also we decided to get a bubble study and guess what We found a 69-year-old man with a PFO, and that now explains his stroke. It was probably a DVT that went and gave him a stroke, a little piece of it flung off. So he's getting evaluated for a PFO closure as well. But all of this, all of this, this whole thing with all these unraveling little surprises... Um, it wouldn't have happened if I didn't listen to him and listen to what he had to say and as a trainee sometimes you're just so rushed rush, 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 rush you're overworked you're, o- you're overburdened you're hungry you haven't peed in like eight, 8 hours you've got this full bladder but these are the moments that I know you live for This is why we signed up for all of this crap to begin with. So when these small moments come, cherish them. Cherish the time to listen to a patient, even if they babble on about nothingness and it leads to literally nothing. And I hope that this has impacted you and... Has shown you how you can apply just listening skills, simple listening and digging skills into every single one of your patients. I really enjoyed telling this story, and I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. If you want to find me, come hang out on Instagram, the female doc. Once again, my name's Dr. Khan, and I loved hanging out with you guys. Have a great day.